0: Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben Mannhof war, sprach
1: ich schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Und zweitens, sie wollte daher kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland.
2: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. We are historians specializing in Nazi Germany, and today we have another special episode lined up about resistance, protest, and compromise. We'll be starting with a book review that reignites our running debate about resistance, and then Nathan Stoltzfus will once again grace us with his presence to talk about euthanasia, civilian evacuations, and most importantly, his research on the Rosenstrasse protest. This part of the interview covers a lot of background, especially when it comes to Jewish policy, and it gets stuck into the big questions of why certain protests work while others failed. Before we begin, I just wanted to thank those of you who have taken the time to rate and review the podcast. We are continuing to grow. We just cracked 7,500 episodes served, but we still need your help to make sure that we're appearing in people's search lists and things like this. Your reviews and your ratings help expose us to a broader audience. So with the traditional badgering out of the way, I'd like to thank you for tuning in, and without further ado, present you with the news.
1: Welcome, everyone. Uh, We would like to start today with a little book review that Ryan has got for us. Uh, So, Ryan, what's what's the book, and what can you tell us about it?
2: It's (laughs) a collection of essays entitled Herr Hitler, Your Time is Up, Resistance in the Saar, 1935 to 1945, and it's really a collection of the conclusions from the Resistance in the Saar, 1935 to 1945 program that ran from 2011 to 2014 and was part of the larger Resistance in the Rhineland project. Uh, once again, I, I owe my thanks to the H Social Cult Feed. The project itself identified 575 cases of resistance in the Saarland. And analyze those, the The source bases, or the primary source base that was used for the project was 21,000 reparation files, the Entschädigungs- und Wiedergutmachung-Akten uh, from the Landesarchiv in Saarbrücken. And it also pulled on files from Koblenz, Duisburg, and Speer. And based on that, I'm going to guess that means that they were looking at, uh, specific shop files, but, uh, Duisburg and Speyer coming up is the, that's, that is well known. That's where two of the surviving collections reside. So anyway, um, so that immediately piqued my interest. My nose started to twitch, but the, the introduction broke down and. I thought this was interesting apropos our discussion about what constitutes resistance uh, the argument we had a few weeks back. But the way that this particular project broke it down was on a scale that sort of ranged from nonconformity up to attempted overthrow. And I think that's, that's a pretty good way to do it. They're using resistance as their, their blanket term for all activity that includes nonconformity. But they are they are further subdefining it into these different categories. That's great, yeah, anyway uh i I'm not sure that's perhaps a discussion for a different time. We can get into another round of what constitutes resistance and what's the right <laughs> word, but uh in that case, that's what I mean when I'm saying it here anyway the the SAR is a peculiar area and an interesting one because it was broken off after nineteen eighteen from the rest of Germany and held under a foreign mandate uh, as part of the the settlement of the first world war and uh, overall the findings in the region uh show that communist religious and everyday resistance which would be primarily that nonconformity category they were talking about was what played the largest role in resistance to the regime with very little jewish or military resistance now the first essay addressed the regional peculiarities of the Saar, apart from, as I told you, it, the fact that it was broken off in 1918. That was quite an important point, though, because that made it the first call port of sorry the first port of call for political opponents who were fleeing from Germany. It was a German it was it was part of Germany and was again under Hitler and again after the Second World War. But it became this place, a German speaking area under foreign control that Germans who were fleeing political persecution could stop at on their way to exiting the country. Reunification with Germany in 1935, or the debate about reunification in 1935, presented a dilemma because there was a fundamental approval of the idea of reunification and being a part of Germany once more, but this existed despite certain aversion to national socialist ideology. Now quite famously, the resulting plebiscite meant that people voted, whether they were holding their nose or not, 90.8% in favor of reunification. Now, the essay on religious resistance actually echoed points that have been raised by Nathan Stoltzfus, and he's actually agreed to appear and, uh, is going to be on for an interview in the near future. But the, the argument is that the, uh, entconfessional, the, the, the de-religification, I don't know, the, the de-secularization, the I suppose would be the proper English word of public life and the removal of religious symbols, uh, and, limitations on on public displays of religiosity, uh, sort of these attacks on tradition, as Nathan Schulzfuss has called them, meant that Catholics were particularly active in their opposition to the regime. By contrast, evangelicals were very limited in their resistance. It tended to only come from clergy, with little actual opposition from the laity or the congregation itself and uh or at least in terms of re- of opposition that was grounded in a religious identity, I should point out people could pro- people could oppose the regime for a variety of reasons, right These are people who were opposing in so- opposing Nazism in some way that was connected to the religious identity so for the Catholics, this had to do with the limitations in public life for Protestants that primarily came from their their priests so the essay on leftist opposition showed uh, that there was never actually really a good point for leftist opposition in the Tsar. There were other parts of the country where the left, whether it's the Communist Party or the Socialist Party, temporarily managed to reorganize itself, and this particular essay was written with a comparative view. But uh, I I don't know why. Perhaps because of its status as a way station, uh, this would be a good reason to read the book if you're curious to find out the The Tsar never really had that similar never really had a point where the leftist opposition gained much traction. Another essay addressed middle class conservatives and liberals as well as military youth and so-called rescue opposition or uh, resistance and i I had never heard of this concept of resist or of rescue resistance. The article defined nineteen thirty four as a breaking point for many middle class groups. Uh, that would be the the Night of Long Knives, the Röhm Putsch. So, 1934 constituted a breaking point for many of these groups. They needed to either distance themselves or were disillusioned with uh, National Socialism more broadly. Nevertheless, this never really progressed into the the more serious forms of resistance. It remained this kind of everyday resistance on the the nonconformity end of the spectrum, uh, either refusing the Heil Hitler greeting. or or somehow attempting to display non-participation or distance oneself from the ideology, but not really opposing it. The other point that I thought that was really interesting that was raised by this article was that the author did not like the idea of rescue uh, as a resistance or an act of resistance. And they pointed out, as again, apropos the point that I was raising uh, in our argument when we were discussing Rusenik, that uh, post-war reparation investigations in the case of rescuing people's lives did not identify these actions as politically motivated. Uh, they, were, they were personally motivated, they were motivated for humane reasons, but they weren't motivated by an opposition to National Socialism in some way. There is a, a sort of closing essay that is quite critical of the war generation and its, its attitudes toward Nazism and it is based on the 21,000 reparation files where this guy the who wrote the article actually only found 100 people that he would identify among the reparation files as having what he called either exa- especially exemplary or notably untypical character that led them to somehow stand up and act- actively oppose national socialism
1: from this collection of 21,000 files There were 100 people that were identified as what you would call a principled resistor. Uh,
2: I'm not sure how he defines it, but as yeah, as he calls it, notably atypical character, Hmm. right? Um, Untypisch. I I I don't know. Is it like atypical or untypical character? Either way. Uh, Untypical. Yeah, it's it's a very low number, and these are people who made a case to an official body after the war that they had somehow been negatively affected by national socialism and deserved some type of reparation or agreement, a recognition Mm of grievances. Anyway, that, uh, yeah, those were the essays. It, It seemed to provide an interesting overview of the different typologies and, uh, particular concentrations and types of resistance offered by different social groups and so obviously piqued my interest.
1: Yeah this this bit about the middle class backlash against the night of the long knife the Rome putsch in 1934. I think that's interesting because you know I mean it was it was illegal it was violent mm-hmm. but it was kind of counter revolutionary the, the the point of the Night of the Long Knives was to get rid of the more radical wing of the party that wanted to continue to, to press the revolution forward. So there would be a backlash against that. It's kind of surprising. Was was it just rejection of, of methods rather than objectives? Do you have a sense for that?
2: I have a sense from other stuff that I've read, uh, not not from this particular... Not, not from this particular book review. I think that it's, it's interesting that the, the part or that the German polite, German polite society or middle class, respectable classes always seem to couch their opposition in a violation of either tradition or kind of process and law. And uh, like, I mean, remember one of Galately's favorite stories is about how the woman writes to Hitler about the T4 euthanasia program. And she says, I heard this is happening. I just wanted to make sure it was legal. And mm-hmm. when she's informed that it is in fact above board and that this is in fact, you know, everything is regulated and, you know, it's, it's legal, then okay, that's great. Right. I just, but, and I, I think in that, and that's, it mirrors the middle class reaction to the middle class reaction to the night of the long knives mirrors its reaction to the T4 program and to the, and to Kristallnacht, for that matter, that when the regime steps outside the boundaries of, of process, right? So long as there is a process that is understood to be legitimate, then everything's okay, right? Everything is okay. But if, if there's no process, if it seems to be something that is uh, you know, r- regardless of what the aims are, whether it's revolutionary or counter-revolutionary, right? Then that's, that is the problem. The problem is the lack of, you know, this is unordentlich, Chris. It needs to be ordentlich.
1: <laughs> well, that does put you in a difficult position, though, right? If, uh, we're talking about resistance, right? wouldn't resistance itself be unordentlich? <laughs> it's, or outright like, illegal.
2: Well I mean, i like I like how you're playing with the concept, but I mean, there's a difference between expressing your view as a reliable and loyal German, right? which is every German's right and actually resisting nonconformity is not resistance is also well, sorry, they define it as resistance, but nonconformity is also the t- the end of the scale where a lot of the the more respectable parts of society end up. and again, I didn't mention it, but the religious opposition from Catholics—a large part of it—is just simply constituted in continuing to attend public religious events, right? That are that are technically uh, verboten, right? So,
1: okay, so sure, yeah. There's plenty of ways to uh, express your disillusionment without rioting, <laughs> taking to the streets, or trying to bring down the regime, without without going to that extreme end of the resistance spectrum attempting to overthrow the german regime
2: yeah and and i think this kind of this whole discussion about the spectrum raises one of the issues that i see frequently in the literature on the gestapo more broadly when you're specifically looking at social control that i think is a problem is that when you treat when you when you approach the study of Nazi Germany with the concept that the Nazi regime is criminal and, uh, and and somehow illegitimate or not normal or a departure of society rather than a legitimate government, the legitimate government of the time, right? Um, notwithstanding with the, the the findings of the Nuremberg trials, just leaving that aside for a moment. But when you when you approach the idea of the Nazis as criminal, you tend to group. You, you get, you end up with weird groupings of activity where you can put somebody who is suggesting the violent overthrow of the government in the same basket as somebody who just keeps their hands in their pockets when somebody says Heil Hitler. And, or, I, and, think, I,
1: and I suppose if you're going to throw out this rescue resistance, you would actually place them in a higher basket than somebody who's harboring Jews.
2: Well, I thought that it was quite interesting and, uh, laudable that this article was kind of drawing the distinction that because this was not politically motivated, it maybe didn't belong as part of resistance, regardless of whether or not it was, you know, more moral and daring than things that many other people dare, took on, right? Uh, or risks that people took to defy the will of the regime in that respect. But, um, I don't know. I, I do think, I think that motive matters. You know what I mean? Yeah. Particularly when you're trying to construct something as, as fundamental as like resistance to, uh, resistance to the government, right? That's a, that's a strong word.
1: It is. But, you know, I think this is where a lot of my, my hangups come from we such a, idealized version of of what resistance could be. And maybe that's why it's easy to get so disappointed when you actually go looking for.
2: Yeah. You're Uh, you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to find what you were hoping people would have done.
1: Well, sure that you know, we even go out go out looking for heroes, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to be a hero that you have to have pristine objectives, pristine motivations. That you you have to have disregard for your own life and you know have have a clear idea of what you hope for the future. Who live up to that?
2: Well, I mean there are examples, right? That's why we put those people on a pedestal. Sure. I, I think that it's a mistake to <laughs> the <laughs> shall, debate shall we continues. Have another
1: hour long <laughs> yeah. discussion of resistance.
2: <laughs> ah. Well, let's just close this chapter on the matter.
1: Something tells me that we haven't finished the chapter yet, but yeah, let's put a bookmark in it for
2: are here to that. Well, on that note, we move over to part two of our conversation with Nathan Stoltzfus. Welcome back to part two of our discussion with Nathan Stoltzfus, where we'll be discussing issues that arise from the declaration of war onward, as well as some of the bigger questions that arise out of what he writes in Hitler's Compromises. After we crossed the threshold into 1939, you turn your attention to the T4 program and the confrontation over Nazi euthanasia. Now, when you begin your discussion about this program, you talk about it as a search to retain popular legitimacy. How so?
0: Well, the Nazis had been able to introduce forced sterilization in July of 1933. And when they did that, they had their propaganda posters which showed all the flags in Western uh in, in the Western world and also in Japan, that had already introduced forced sterilization. So that was something that the people could stomach, uh, although the uh, regime did have to introduce these uh, formalized processes of appeal and uh, complaints, uh, bureaucratize that. But uh, from the beginning, uh, there was this uh, trial. Uh, Ideas about whether uh you know doctors would be liable as murderers if they uh eliminated people who were not pure blooded Germans, and the churches reacted negatively uh that's happening in thirty four thirty three thirty four and i And not long after that Hitler uh mentions that he will wait until the war to introduce the murder of the people that they've been sterilizing, the population that they consider incurably ill, and that they consider useless eaters. These are people uh, who Nazi propaganda portray as not being able to pay their way, as being burdens on the master race, uh, holding them down from spreading out and pushing their way uh through the continent and shoving others out of the way the master way the, way the master race should do because they're they're being held down by all of these uh these sick people internally so they should just be uh killed according to uh Nazi so-called euthanasia uh ideology and uh well Hitler uh he doesn't, is not able to build his popularity with that very much. I think mostly he's just trying to, that's why it's conducted, uh, ostensibly secretly and, and, you know, it, there's an effort to, to, uh, conduct euthanasia in secret once that's introduced in the winter of 1938 39. I think it's possible to make a plausible argument that the regime was hoping that enough news of this would see, seep out and that people would become gradually aware of it and and come to uh, uh at least condone it if not greet it uh, but in fact uh, the word that seeped out uh about the euthanasia uh, among families this was uh, a terrible uh event and and it was only it was really uh concentrated among the family members who survived family members who were victimized there their family members followed this and could tell that, uh, that this was not really, uh, the deaths weren't due to natural causes that the Nazis were claiming. And, uh, and so it led to, uh, more and more unrest, more and more anxiety, uh, and this, of course, was, uh, growing. It's interesting that before Golan uh, spoke out in his famous sermon in August 1941, Uh, that uh, Himmler decided to close Grafenek, That was uh, where I think gas chambers were first used early that year in 1940 to kill those who were considered uh, incurables. And uh, by December, uh, Himmler uh, receives a letter. This is from a woman, a local leader uh, of a Nazi women's organization, Leuwitz, who writes to him and and writes not to him, but to someone who knows him uh, and says, uh, you know, uh, this idea among the people that Hitler always makes things right as soon as he knows that there is something wrong is in danger, she said, because, uh, uh, you know, this is the most uh, precious weapon the Nazis have, but it's being tested now so long. Murders have been going on in Grafenegg since uh, January of 1940, I believe it was, people con- they had these gas chambers, a crematoria. Uh, buses pulled up. Uh, uh, people surmised that they were being killed and burned. And uh, Himmler decides that uh, because it's caused such a bad mood in Grafenegg, that uh, that facility will have to be closed, specifically because of the mood. And Himmler says we'll have to do it in a different way. If we aren't successful, it's because we're not doing this right. And, of course, in the background, uh, Himmler wants to have a lot of propaganda he thinks will be uh, useful. It's all based on the economics the fact that how much these people are, co- are costing society. Now, of course, in that case, uh, the uh, uh, facility is, is moved elsewhere and the gassings go on. Uh, uh, but, uh, that, that introduces us to uh, the fact that there's, uh, there are pockets of, of real anxiety and dissent and anger and fury, uh, along, uh, and, you know, that, that, that don't believe the official story that there is no such thing as these murders, uh, going on. And, uh, at the same time, it's accompanied, according to this woman, uh, by this, what she considers the a precious belief that, that Hitler doesn't know and how long can this go on she says she fears it can't go on uh too much longer so uh when when Gallen, uh speaks uh gives voice to this widespread anxiety and anger in august 1941 uh he uh he, he sort of makes it impossible for for uh any claims that that Hitler doesn't know after all the Allies also begin spreading this uh that's later, but uh with, with Gallen uh, discussing this from the pulpit, uh Hitler uh orders this uh hot decree and uh and the wild euthanasia ensues decentralized in ways uh that uh, don't mobilize anger and protest to uh, to the same extent so that it, it can continue but at a much more reduced level against populations uh that don't have as many uh, relatives and uh as uh, much backing within the right so as
2: the the war progresses and the civilian population begins to feel its effects you lay out this complex negotiation that starts to happen between the regime and the population over the civil defense initiatives. I have to say, I really actually, I really enjoyed this part of the book, but I, I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the examples of this cycle of evacuation, protest, and soft strategy that you outline.
0: Okay. Well, it does start in 1938 with the Sudeten crisis, uh... How uh, the people on the western border, not on the eastern border, uh, on the western border of France, the enemy that they fear, uh, they're afraid that they're s- sitting right in the way of uh, a French military invasion in case uh, war does happen as Hitler keeps threatening. And so uh, I think it's, it's hundreds of thousands, about a half a million. We don't have the exact numbers, but uh, they just m- start moving. And, uh, it's ironic because this is the description in the negative propaganda of the French the Nazis have that they don't follow their leaders. They're just a disorganized organism. And, you know, they're not really, uh, uh, capable of acting as a people. They're not really a people. And the Germans, of course, uh, would stay put and, uh, you know, face their enemies. Uh, they'd even stay in the, uh, you know, air shelters, they wouldn't flee in any case. So, uh, you know, that's that's an irony, of course. But, uh, you know, when they do start leaving the border, Hitler uh, is asked by uh, Gödel, and, uh, you know, we need to regulate this because this is going to interfere with Nazi logistic with uh, army logistics. Uh, we can't really plan. These people are in the way. Uh, what if we had to start taking action? Not to mention the fact that here are five hundred thousand people who uh, who uh, the Nazis don't know where they are, and uh, that's that's an amazing situation in nineteen thirty-eight in Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. where uh, you know uh, the Fuhrer uh, has everything in his in his grasp, but people only want to follow the Fuhrer, and the same thing happens again in nineteen thirty-nine with. Uh, uh, with similar results that, uh, that Hitler doesn't want to step in and regulate these people because, uh, he probably recognizes this is some sort of primordial kind of, uh, angst that's causing people to move and he would lose authority if he tried to regulate this and no one paid attention. Of course, uh, if he tried to regulate it and used Gestapo force to do it, he would also Alienate people uh who were absolutely convinced that their life was at stake anyway, so uh, some of them might be moved to uh uh just put their life on the line in resisting the regime uh we don't i there's not uh, black and white evidence that this is what Hitler thought, but it uh, seems uh seems plausible even likely that this is what Hitler calculated when he refused the orders or the request of the army to make orders regulating evacuations that's in 38 and 39 right. and of course uh the kinderlandferschickung the, uh, the depression of children begins in uh, 1940 with the bombings uh in uh, berlin and hamburg in the rural areas berlin and hamburg especially and uh Himmler, uh, Hitler is very clear that this has to be done voluntarily. Hitler always, uh, maintains this position throughout the war that these Gauleiters and leaders of Nazi operations and policies should be educating the people, that they have to be brought along and not just uh, forced into a resentful compliance and embittered, uh, Compliance, but uh, education. He keeps uh, saying, even as the war is uh, becoming increasingly obviously lost to the Germans, Hitler keeps telling the Gauleiters they have to uh, persuade the people. So he says this has to be done voluntarily, uh, and uh, uh, that that doesn't bring uh, bring bring some protest. Uh, the, The one of the questions in historiography has been the degree of choice that parents had in cooperating with this. Another question was uh, whether this uh, uh, program to evacuate children was really a national socialist or was it just a, a, a wonderful preservation of children as as human beings? And uh, that notion prevailed quite a while into the 80s that uh, parents had no choice but to cooperate with it, with, uh, uh, sending their children away and that uh this was uh this was really a kind of a welfare program on behalf of human life it wasn't really part of a nazi program uh sending children to the countryside so they wouldn't be bombed uh in these allied raids uh but uh, uh even though many german parents must have not perceived that they had a choice again we have those few precious uh, cases where uh and, and, you know, sometimes it's more, uh, sometimes the town acted, uh, together to not cooperate. Uh, we see that there was a choice. Uh, of course, uh, uh the Jehovah's Witnesses also, these mere 25,000, uh, show that, uh, there was a choice. It's just, were you willing to count the cost? Were you willing to pay the cost? Uh, these ordinary Germans, even in just 25,000, uh, uh, were, were able to, uh, you know, exercise choice. So, uh, uh, and, but the parents of these children who refused to send their, their children on these, uh, evacuations were not punished like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, uh, uh, to the most uh, part they were uh you know allowed to school their children at home increasingly parents were uh were able to visit their children in these uh evacuation sites uh you know religious instruction was something that the uh, bishops uh really worked toward and pressured the regime to allow in these sites but the real uh, uh, evacuation pr- protest uh, happened, uh, in, uh, the Ruhr area because the regime began deporting adults and not just children, uh, in these cities where the Allies were bombing, especially along the, uh, Ruhr, uh, ri- uh, edge there of, uh, of Germany. And, uh, in Witten, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, women, were supposed to go to Baden because the the town was being bombed and uh to save lives and uh only only the people who were uh, uh couldn't be replaced were supposed to stay in in working uh producing armaments and these women uh, uh were clogging up the trains by going back and forth. There were a number of reasons uh why this was uh why the regime was regulating these uh, evacuees and saying you had to go to an evacuation site and you had to stay there, uh, not just to uh, save uh, resources in terms of these lives, but also they were tying up the trains by going back and forth uh, to, uh, in this case, Witten and Baden. And, uh, in nearby newspapers, they were called Folkschädlinge. It doesn't get worse than that, really. Uh, that's what the Jews were really in a more, I guess, uh, uh, a higher form or a bigger degree. That is somebody who's actually, uh, bringing down the folk that with political intentions or at least with choice, those at least were incurably ill were, were also, uh, kind of, uh, uh, a, a millstone around the neck of the folk, but they weren't choosing that so they, they this was uh was was a kind of uh uh in effect a political resistance and when this Galileiter in in the area of Witten um uh, decided to he was going to have a soft coercion that he was going to uh withhold their food stamps. Uh, food rations it's going to withhold their food rations until they were in Baden, where they were uh, officially designated uh as being and uh the s d records that there were three hundred women. It appears to have been staged. How did they appear at once and uh uh when uh they were asked to uh clear out the protest, the local police refused. Which again is not the kind of none of this is the kind of history we know about in the Third Reich, let alone in October of nineteen forty three. Mm-hmm. We have women protesting and, and instead of obeying, uh and they're making their demands and the and the, the SD says that they, they did this in order to force their way and to impose their will on the regime. And uh uh, and, and some of the, uh, statements they're making are really political. They're not just about, uh, being with their families, getting their food. They're, you know, making, uh, comments about life in, in the Reich and about the leaders. And, and, and there's also a willingness expressed by at least some of them to, uh, die on the spot. They said, you know, if we're going to, you know, we might as well send us, uh, uh, to Russia and shoot us, or, you know, uh, if we're going to die, we want to be here with our families and our children. Again, it's not a fundamental political resistance, but when they're on the street uh, and this uh, and this protest uh, spreads to Ham and Lunin, a couple uh, nearby villages where they're also having uh, uh, extreme uh anger expressed publicly and by crowds in the streets about uh, the fact that they're not getting their food rations and the regime uh, uh, backs down. It does that in this way. That happens in October of 1943. And uh, because there is uh, so much disagreement among the Galeiters about whether they should be using these kinds of tactics, this soft coercion, of uh, manipulating food distribution, food ration distribution, in order to uh, uh, make sure that the Germans comply. Goebbels takes this to Hitler. You need a Führer uh, decision again, just like the uh, bishops need, uh, just like the regional leaders and Nazis needed in 1934 uh, because they disagreed. And so Hitler uh, says, nope, we need, that's not, that. that using force is not the appropriate means. To bring the people in line here, that the uh appropriate means is education, and uh so basically, as of that point, we see Hitler reigning in even this minor aspect of radicalization. It seems clear that in the persecution of the Jews up until the mass annihilation and genocide that that Hitler is encouraging or at least sanctioning. The radicalization as these, uh, uh, as this theory, uh, has a cumulative radicalization, uh, that leads to the Holocaust. But this is, this is actually, uh, one of the rare instances where Hitler interferes with Gauleiter prerogative is to show that this mechanism does not work within the Reich in terms of governing within the Reich. You don't have the same Uh, tools available. You don't have the same means. You have to use the appropriate means of persuasion uh, when you're dealing with the German-blooded people.
2: Well, it only seems appropriate that you end your book with your proverbial crown jewel of protest. What was Rosenstrasse, and, and why is it so important for these larger points you're making about Hitler's desire to avoid confrontation in order to maintain legitimacy?
0: Yes, well, Rosenthal's protest was uh, a protest by uh, the non-Jewish uh, wives primarily of uh, Jewish men, Jewish men who were uh, arrested suddenly along with uh, uh, about 10,000, 11,000 February of 1943 and brought into uh, pre-deportation centers and uh, the Jews who were married to non-Jews were brought to a Jewish administration building in Berlin, in the center of the city, a small street called Rosenstrasse. And uh, there, uh, these women who were not Jewish uh, met. They they found out, uh, and most of them uh, went one by one, two by two to this uh, uh, this. Uh, Samalaga in Rosenstrasse's collection center, pre-deportation center, and they met each other there. And solidarity began to develop as they uh, realized they were in the same uh, situation. But also uh, by 1943, these women had really been sculpted and molded by uh, uh, non-compliance with Nazi demands, starting already in 1933. The Nazis made it extremely inconvenient, then extremely uncomfortable, then uh you know, worse followed uh with each successive year. You had to pay uh a stronger and stronger price, not just due to propaganda, not just due to Gestapo, but because of the neighbors, uh because you were thumbing the nose at uh the neighbors, the belief in uh Aryans, uh the belief that the Jews were so inferior that they had to be pushed out of the Reich, the lock, locked, uh, you know, uh, totally. Uh, so, uh, this, this was, uh, uh, something that they, uh, was a, was a, a, every minute, every day uncertainty, uh, due to, uh, the Gestapo in terms of, uh, uh, many of them were, were wearing, uh, the Star of David as of 19, uh, uh, 41, certainly the Jews in the Rosenstrasse were wearing this, uh, uh, Star of David and their, uh, their, their, their wives had to do everything in public for them, had to accompany them in public. Goebbels is raging that, uh, these people who have Jewish partners show so obviously that they don't understand national socialism that they should be sharing the fate of the Jews. It shouldn't be that the Jews are going to be exempted because of of, of them. This is the, of course, the ideological position, position of the regime, and it's the uh, uh, Goebbels says it, saying that in his diary that uh, these people show themselves to be politically unreliable in their marriages. Well, uh, Rosenstrasse was just the culmination of a, uh, uh, you know, you can think of it as uh, as lifting weights. You don't start out trying to lift 250 pounds if you're just starting to lift weights, but you try to work up to it. And these uh, resistors, going in the opposite direction of the compliance and cooperation and compromise that most of the other Germans were going in in order to feel it comfortable with what the regime was doing to Jews or, you know, in the war. Uh, these very few Germans who found a fundamental reason to be unhappy with the regime uh, included these uh, you know, thousands of intermarried Jews, some 20 to 30,000 at this point. And uh they had uh every, every uh, day was a laboratory of resistance for them where uh not just uh socially, not just with regard to propaganda, not with regard to the terror, uh but uh in uh in their whole uh uh resistance to Nazism, because for many of them their family was what their life was about and the Nazis made it clear that their families were politically impossible so uh, we have this uh, we have this protest in february and march of 1943 where hundreds of women there's a lot of uh, discussion about uh, at least there was at one point about how many uh, women were there um uh, and certainly, hundreds at, at at any given time, and over a period of uh, of a whole week that this went on, it uh, you know if there were hundreds at any given time, people coming and going, uh, there could have been thousands uh, uh, involved overall. If there were uh, several hundred at once say uh and and we do know that uh, these women kept uh coming and going many kept uh, you know uh going to work going back home coming back when they could uh some were just there watching the door to make sure they knew what happened to their relative if he happened to come out or or not and uh uh and and this uh this cry went up: uh, "Give us our husbands back! We want our husbands." It wasn't just to see their husbands. It wasn't just to get supplies to them. They did see them through the windows to some extent. They did. They were able to bring supplies to them. Uh, some of my interviews talked about the notes they slipped into a sandwich or how they uh, they said, "My husband has the house key." uh can you get it from him and that's the way they found out that he was in fact there uh but uh, once there they decided to make a scene already uh the first night uh, february the 27th uh i have one eyewitness who said that they they agreed to come together the next morning and to make a scene certainly you weren't supposed to make a scene uh and you weren't even supposed to gather. This was illegal. Uh, gathering, let alone calling out together in a chant, uh, was, was certainly illegal since May of 1933, if not earlier. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, drawing attention to the final solution, as the Nazis called it, was uh, something uh, very unwanted. Goebbels calls it a very unlovely scene hmm. uh, in his diaries. And says that, uh, <clears throat> he rationalizes that since he wasn't able, he, he says on February the 18th that he's going to finally rid Berlin of all Jews and, uh, declare Berlin free of Jews. And, uh, that's now his goal as the Gauleiter, the, uh, um, you know, the, the sort of de facto leader of the Gauleiters and the leader of Greater Berlin. And, uh, And uh, then on on March of 60, he says, Well, we didn't get everybody, unfortunately, and some are taking the part of Jews, and uh, I'm going to release those Jews from Rosenstrasse and we'll get them all the more thoroughly. Since some, you know, since we'll have to have another roundup anyway, this is not going to be the final roundup after all. The Gestapo's, uh, uh, code word for this in Berlin was the final roundup or, uh, no, uh, the, uh, and you uh, don't know the and the final uh, Jewish action in Berlin that at least is what uh, the Gestapo leader Walter Stock refers to it in the early 1950s when he was uh, brought to trial. He said that's what the Gestapo in Berlin was calling it. Overall throughout the Reich there were other uh, there were other arrests and deportations under the uh, the code word of uh, Entjudung des Reichsgebietes, that is, uh, the dejudicialization of the Reich territory. This was the same name that uh, Himmler gave his order in November five, nineteen forty-two, in which he decided that now we're going to have all the Jews removed from Reich territory. And even, uh, Jews in concentration camps would have to be moved out of, uh, out of German territory, Reich territory, and even the Mischling, uh, that is, according to the Nuremberg laws, uh, some of those, uh, who the Nazis considered half Jews had now to be, uh, had, had to be leaving Reich territory. So, this was the action that was going to uh remove all the Jews from Reich territory. And this time, uh, for the first time, Jews in intermarriage were included. That's why uh in the uh, uh among some people, among some uh, Jewish authorities, it was known as the intermarried action. Mm-hmm. But uh, because of this protest as Goebbels records, uh, <clears throat> this is an episode. Uh, And it matches the rest of Nazi decisions. After all, the Nuremberg Laws uh, have a pretty broad sweep. Certainly, if you're intermarried, you're not exempted from being a Jew. You're still considered a full Jew. The marriage isn't dissolved. So already with the Nuremberg Laws, there's some compromise to the ideology. Uh only a small about eleven percent or so of uh the so-called half Jews of the first degree, uh Michelin of the first degree are counted as Jews. Uh the Jews who are already married to non-Jews are not forced to divorce. Um and uh Shanda, sexual relations between Jews and and uh, non-Jews presumably uh, continues in these intermarriages. So there's already a compromise here but this compromise just continues to widen the more the non-jewish partners of these uh german jews uh don't comply uh the more the compromise uh widens for example in 1942 there's this effort to prohibit jews from getting newspapers and the uh newspaper vendors are called in and the post office can't send it to them and and it, it just goes nowhere because as as one of them says you know we can't tell who's married to a Jew and who isn't obviously it's not the Jews who are getting these newspapers it's their non-Jewish partners who are their uh uh you know her who, who are sustaining them of course as of 1941 with the introduction of the star of david for all Jews uh Jewish star they should be wearing if they're six or over there is um this uh, solidarity uh, forming among among the uh the non-jews hitler says that uh with regard to non-jews and this is after uh a uh, a famous german actor commits suicide rather than divorce uh soon after that in november 1941 hitler tells Ger- uh, goebbels that he has to of course you have to you know get the jews out but you have to proceed with some special caution uh, special caution is 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 again not word verbatim but uh uh with special care in in uh deporting intermarried jews especially those who are uh i think he mentions actors mm-hmm. so uh, the desire is uh, so uh uh this 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 uh uh, this is not codified. There is uh, a secret decree in December of 1938 that that divides intermarried Jews into two categories. And this is extremely important to keep in mind. It shows that uh, just like in Mischlinge, in the Nuremberg Laws, it's a tough category. The Nazis are not going to try to bite off more than they can chew. In this case, they 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 start with just counting those Jews. Uh, Those half-Jews who are either married to Jews or members of the Jewish community as Jews, that's about 11% who are members of the Jewish community. Most of them, of course, have been uh, baptized in in Catholic uh, or Protestant churches. So uh, you have this uh, broadening uh, compromise with regard to Jews that have non-Jews in the family probably uh the whole uh events of the euthanasia are not lost on the nazis after all it's the family members there who uh who really start the trouble and uh who are really the locus the center of of the knowledge and the anger about uh, uh the uh, the death of their their family members and so uh, when the uh regime begins to pour Uh, deport Jews, it does it family by family. Now, with the uh, Jews at Rosenstrasse, it's quite possible that they were going to be sent to a labor camp instead of directly to the uh, gas chambers. Wherever they were going to be sent, uh, uh, it it was not as important as the fact that they were never to be seen again as the uh, uh, director of the Jewish community personnel office I interviewed and said they were supposed to be put on a train and then you would never see them again, just like the other Jews, uh, just like intermarried Jews, already hundreds if not thousands of intermarried Jews had been taken off to uh, prisons under Schutzhaft in the Reich, and if they survived 90 days, then they were sent on to uh, camps where they they were to die. Uh, This... uh, there was a process of criminalization of these intermarried Jews uh, rather than uh, including them in the general deportations uh, in Frankfurt. Gauleiter Springer tried to, uh, and this was a conclusion of the uh, post-war court in West Germany, tried to include them in the final solution by criminalizing them and uh, sending them off to, uh, uh, under Schutzhof for 90 days, uh, into uh, uh, uh work camps or prisons I and mean, then if they survived that they would just be taken off if it uh you know uh, was clear by then that uh they didn't have uh, that they they could be uh they could be disappeared without causing a lot of uh a lot of uh, questioning and protest and drawing attention to the whole uh, final solution so uh, the point here is that uh this release doesn't come out of the blue it's just part of the It's part of this negotiation the regime has been doing with the non-Jews who are married to Jews. And uh, uh, Goebbels, on the 15th of of, uh, February, when he talks about making uh, Berlin free of Jews at last, uh, says that uh, he's going to have Sepp Dietrich, the head of the uh, SS Leibstandard to Hitler, help him achieve his goal. I think this is, uh, at least the SS Leipzig and Artur Hitler was there for the first two days of this roundup, February 27th and 28th, 1943. Uh, and so this was, a, Goebbels was afraid, as he wrote in his diaries, that the workers and the Jews would be making some sort of concubinage and having an uprising. Uh, and he uh, wanted to intimidate this, uh, any kind of protest with the appearance of these uh SS Leibstandard Hitler the the most elite group of SS men uh so uh so Goebbels anticipated there might be trouble the Nazis had already been widening uh their uh compromises as they kept tightening the noose of uh you know small rations for Jews But also, as of 1938, in the Kristallnacht, it was calling these uh, women who were married to Jews into Gestapo offices and threatening them, cajoling them, promising that their sons would go to military schools if they divorced, or that they could uh, reward these women in various ways if they just divorced, or they would uh, threaten them. Uh, So uh, this was a whole process that was continuing. that, uh, these, uh, these threats together with compromises if they didn't work, uh, was, uh, there's, was an escalation of that process here on the streets of Rosenstrasse in February 1943 with Goebbels bringing in the SS, Leibstandarte, and the women, uh, stepping up and taking a much bigger risk, uh, than ever before. Of course, it was, uh, something that couldn't have worked uh, probably in a city outside of Berlin where there wasn't uh, so many uh, intermarried Jews, where there weren't uh, journalists or uh, members of uh, foreign embassies to see uh, others to uh, join in or to uh, uh, to uh, take notice. Uh, this was something that uh, happened in Berlin in the course of uh Goebbels uh was there and Goebbels always wanted to do things uh as he saw it, uh in some sort of psychologically sophisticated way that didn't result in, in big scenes of uh brutality and force that would rely on Himmler's police, but uh he he treated it as a psychological problem. For him for Goebbels there's always a psychological answer if you just get people educated properly. And so uh and so this was uh this was an episode and Goebbels rationalizes when he releases these Jews as I said that he'll do uh, he'll get rid of them all the more thoroughly uh, later. Now how we know that uh one of the reasons we know that Goebbels intended to deport these Jews at the uh Rosenstrasse uh is shown in his diaries in April when he says I've got to get rid of these Jews running around with wearing the Star of David either Either I have to send them out of the city or I need to have them take the star off. I can't proclaim uh, Berlin free of Jews if uh, we had people running around the streets with a, a Jewish star on. And so, uh, obviously, he intended to deport all of those uh, people wearing the Jewish star, including those at Rosenstrasse, when he, uh, when he vowed in February the 18th that he was going to make uh, Berlin free of Jews. So basically, it's important to know that, uh, you know, this category of intermarriage that divided intermarried couples into two. First, the category was considered the simple intermarried couples, and the second was the privileged Jews in intermarriage. It wasn't the couples, it was the Jew who was uh, privileged. The uh, Jews in privileged intermarriage uh, that is the majority of them, just like the majority of Mischlinge were uh, exempted from persecution by the Nuremberg laws. Now, the secret decree, Hitler doesn't want to get a discussion about this in December of 1938. He has a secret decree. Now, uh, most of the intermarried couples are, are going to be privileged. Uh, the Jews in those couples are going to be privileged. They won't wear the Star of David. Those who aren't privileged are going to wear the Star of David. And as Goebbels uh, is writing, uh, you know as it's recorded about goebbels when he convinces Hitler to you know introduce the star of david in uh in late uh, summer early fall 1941 he says this is to criminalize them to uh show people that they don't belong now obviously uh goebbels intention then is uh to uh deport all of these uh people Uh, whether through labor camps or prisons or whatever, but to get rid of anybody wearing the Star of David. And uh, uh, certainly uh, those at Rosenstrasse in February, March of 1943 uh, were supposed to disappear because they were wearing the Star of David. So you have this great quote that the people
2: knew where to find the leadership soft spot. If we take a step back and we look at all of these examples and case studies that you lay out in the book, when did protest work and why was it successful in those situations?
0: Well, there were protests against closing monasteries that didn't work, but I think you can say, uh, you know, uh, they worked in that, uh, people were able to express dissent and they weren't, uh, rounded up and, uh, imprisoned. Uh, that is, uh, just like in in the case of Goin preaching, you don't have to prove that uh Goebbels halted i mean that Hitler halted uh, euthanasia because of the because of his uh, his sermons that reflected popular opinion it wasn't because of Gollins's because of the popular opinion that he represented uh you can just say it's a huge compromise there and not uh publicly executing him the way that uh, Bormann and uh, the and others uh in these uh Nazi circles wanted to. So um there is uh you know this circumstance of uh of uh, of, of effective popular uh protest. Um it certainly uh, starts with the Nazi desire to eliminate any evidence that there was a protest. For example, uh, in the city of Ham, somewhere in uh, during the war, uh, a big brouhaha came up and uh, uh, there was some young man who was accused of not being in the war and was going to be arrested and women uh, came around and uh, a protest grew up and the authority, I think, had to... Uh, be a retreat and uh, there are instructions then uh that uh, this should be interpreted to the public as something else there was uh uh, uh gubbles when uh i think talking about the rose protest uh tells uh, his uh, man at his uh, press briefing uh, that there were lots of people on the streets because uh, their houses were bombed. And so people were running around uh, without a place to go. And uh, uh, so uh, certainly the the public nature is, is critical. Guter, when I interviewed him, made a, made a point of this, that uh, you could see exactly what the women wanted. They wanted their families on Rosenstrasse. They weren't calling for the end of the regime. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, the white rose, they were conspirators, they were going behind the back, going underground, they were, uh, actually, uh, not in public. Uh, so that this public aspect, uh, it wasn't that the regime, uh, respected them, but that other people could see them. And what Guter kept emphasizing was that they might learn, uh, from, uh, re- dissidents that, uh, Oh, not only was there other dissent, uh, but that you could actually dissent, and maybe they would start your own movement. Hitler, after all, had shown how quickly he could build up his movement that uh, went against the grain of some standard tradition. So, uh, I think that's certainly a, a very important key that it's not uh, that, it, that it's not secret, but it's public. Secondly. That it's not uh, uh, calling for the overthrow of the entire regime, but that it's, uh, uh, <clears throat> in the case certainly of rescuing thousands of Jews, that's tantamount to getting to what the regime is about, but it's still not calling for the demise of Hitler. It can be understood as just people wanting to uh, be united with their family. So, uh uh so conspiracy is something that uh that that you know open protest cannot be accused of and uh an armed uh uprising is uh you know if uh, if uh protesters or Witten women had showed up with guns, the police would have simply had to shoot them. This is also what Guter emphasized you know police. Shoot somebody who's looking threatening. Uh, so, uh, basically, uh, the key is to express opinion that is not just a single person's opinion and not even just the opinion of those people there on the streets, but of a, of a considerable swath of the German population. That's important. I mean, people could not just meet and say, okay, let's go protest. We decide on this position. No uh the protests that we're talking about were were spontaneously brought into being because a lot of different people had the same idea and they had that same idea based on certain traditions that they weren't willing to give up that nazism had not uh, yet persuaded them to rid themselves of so that they were able to act without an organized head like a political party but they were able to act on their own interests spontaneously uh and then they discovered that there were others equally motivated uh by the same circumstances because they, they shared a tradition that made them think that uh that they had this right or they had this prerogative
2: was was there a space for protest beyond tradition? Because a lot of what you seem to talk about are, are emergent phenomenon of people rallying around some confrontation between something intrinsic to German culture as, as it is understood at the time that the regime wishes to displace, some norm that is being challenged or that is, is being undermined in some way that, right. that seems to sort of provide this cover that you're talking about, right? Like the, that it's publicness, that it fundamentally accepts the regime, but that it also is, is it can act under the aegis of, a call upon tradition that the Nazis are supposed to stand for, right?
0: Yes. Well, that's a real trick, you know, how Hitler can stand up and preach the greatness of uh, blonde hair and six feet tall, or Goebbels, (laughs) you know, and uh, there's that joke that, uh, you know, that says uh, don't tell Hitler that Goebbels is crippled because he doesn't like cripples and might send them off to euthanasia. (laughs) Uh, So that's another compromise right there, of course. I mean, it's riddled with – with with uh, with compromise and uh, these uh, these uh, uh, you know there's a, there's all just a, a slight of appearance that the Nazis are interested in, uh, as you said, uh, hoping that the uh, appearance reifies in practice and those in turn become social norms.
2: Do you see that as ruling out the possibility of protest outside of tradition in Nazi Germany, or is it simply that people never rallied in sufficient numbers, or are there cases, as as you show, where people meet around an, a, a political objective in some way that is suppressed because there's this active control of public discourse and information?
0: And that, that we have to go back to... Uh... Goebbels uh statement in this diary on November the third or the fifth, nineteen forty-three, where he suspects that the people have learned that they can use this as a tactic. I've been more conservative than that and uh have emphasized how tradition can bring people together individually motivated to a high extent, they discover their solidarity and begin acting as a as a collective and not just as an aggregate but uh Goebbels in uh, November of 1943 is saying the people are starting to uh understand uh, uh how to get what they want. This is the soft spot that you've mentioned. He says they've discovered the soft spot of the regime and we can't continue to give into the streets because uh, we'll be giving up authority. We've got to bend the will of the people to the wind- will of the regime and in the meantime, he says, it looks like uh, the will of the regime is being bent to the will of the people. Well, this was uh, th- this was the crux of uh, the problem of compromise. Uh, you know, Hitler doesn't think that he's losing or doesn't think that he's compromising. He just feels like he's, I, and again, I don't have this in black and white, but I suspect that uh you know, he's he's bent uh, with his vision in mind. He thinks he's just moving laterally a few feet in order to move forward. In other words, if he could move to where he wanted to go faster by plowing straight ahead and, and overwhelming everybody with the Gestapo steamroller, he would do that. But that's not going to get him where he wants. And he, uh, you know, so uh, it's a matter of timing. And uh, in terms of, uh, you know, cover... It's not really so much a cover. Well, Goebbels is saying that they are using it as a co- cover and, uh, you know, with the SD reporting on 300 women showing up at once, perhaps they did decide to, uh, to stage this protest. And certainly uh, we know from other uh, sources that the uh, word about the Rosenstrahs of protest got out. Mm-hmm. So,
2: yeah i don't know it's 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 a fascinating topic because uh, to begin with to document that there is that type of protest flies in the face of what much of the traditional historiography has written up until the last 30 years and then to 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 look at really how responsive the regime is to it i suppose well, yeah. from the conversation from what i'm hearing from you is that it very much sounds like you see this primarily as still a tactic.
0: Yeah, no, it was a, a Nazi tactic. Hitler, it was a tactic for Hitler to maintain his image as a Fuhrer. Uh, other agencies were, in fact, intensifying their use of brute force in order to maintain control mm. as the war drew to an end. But but, but Hitler, in his role of a Fuhrer, trying to convince people to leave their traditions and to uh, adopt the Nazi... Uh Attitudes and practices didn't think that uh brute force was going to get him there right
2: yeah the the idea of education rather over education over
0: coercion yes, education he kept coming back to, and that's the odd thing that uh you know that he doesn't change he He has this uh he has this uh breathtakingly insane goal of uh setting germans on a new basis socially of uh you know a new myth a new attitude new practices substitute the nazi substitutes and uh and yet uh, uh he thinks it has to happen in his lifetime uh because uh he's not preparing a successor and i don't think he thinks there is one
2: so I I had a question about just the semantics of the way he constructs that vision or the the way that he constructs his view of Nazi values in private when he's discussing these these sort of lateral moves and you know the waltz to move forward yeah. because when you when you look at say like Groe's regional reports from the the Gauleiter in the Rhineland where there is this extremely strong Catholic pushback there's a discussion there's a shift in rhetoric in the mid 30s that we need to go from a we need to go from a negative program of tearing down things that we don't like to a positive program articulating what it is that national socialism is trying to create and i i hear echoes of that in the quote that you chose about hitler saying oh you know like don't deprive people of their childish certainties unless you have something to replace it with but what what is there is there a rhetorical shift in the way that hitler frames the norms he's trying to create is it clear from the outset like this this kind of it's laid down in black and white in mein kampf and then we proceed or how 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 does how does the education process change over the years
0: in in hitler's conception that that's a good question and uh uh you know Hitler wants to leave it up to the Gauleiter, uh and uh Grohe is one of those who opposes using uh uh f- food- rations to manipulate where people are he although he's also one of the most outspoken uh anti uh anti and uh, pro uh nazi race theory so uh this goes hand in hand the notion that uh you you You've got to you know treat the Jews as brutally as possible. On the other hand, uh, the task with regard to the people who are German blooded is totally different. And uh, Galiters are supposed to be able, as we said, to uh, to understand how fast they can move. There is this new Galiiter in uh, in Alsace-Lorraine when Germans win that, and uh, uh, Hitler lays on very sincerely the task of uh, convincing the people within 10 years uh, they'll they'll be full Nazis. Now, of course, uh, in 1940, that would have been uh, assuming that Germans would win the war. This was a huge hump that Hitler was counting on, of course, that uh, uh you know he was why would he kill Galen um, a month after Galen was protesting uh the following month uh, the euthanasia he was uh, uh admonishing every catholic youth that uh, was uh, male youth to go off to the war with the sense of a, of of, um, of a crusade and the rewards of martyrs he promised them that uh that they would receive receive the same crowning glories in heaven as the martyrs for fighting bolshevism and uh uh and of course there was uh there was always that uh uh that possibility that Hitler could turn these men and uh if uh if uh, you know in nineteen thirty six Golin is saying okay to help you make the choice of whether to vote for this plebiscite or not. Uh, in the 1936 plebiscite in the Nazi slate, we say yes. You should vote yes, even though that means we don't disagree, we don't agree with everything that these this regime is doing to undermine our traditions and our practices. But keeping the bigger picture in mind, we say yes. And so that bigger picture must be German nationalism. Mm-hmm. So uh, of course, with uh, you know, if the, the war had somehow been uh, been won, uh, there would be a totally different game. But Hitler is, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, wants this to happen quickly. Initially, he he's talking in, uh, in Mein Kampf and even in his, uh, I think, maybe even in the table talks, various places where he talks about how long this process of changing the attitudes and the norms will be. And uh, including to a journalist, American journalist in 1932, Keep shortening the amount of time that it's supposed to take to actually uh you know uh, change people's attitudes and beliefs and practices into uh sort of uh automatic Nazi behavior and uh, and that's 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 why you know uh, the big uh you know there's some extreme strategic uh folly there uh just at the same time there's some tactical sense Hitler keeps trying to bring the people with him just as in a dance, as you mentioned, he he, he doesn't want to lead without the people. He doesn't think that's leadership. So, uh, you know, he's got to, he's got to stop and go as fast as the people will let him. But on the other hand, he's got these, uh, these, you know, these wild goals that uh, are just not going to get there through these uh, tactics, even though, you know, I think it's, we have to say that it's frightening how much in, in, uh, six and seven years began in 1933. The Nazis were able to change, uh, perceptions and practices in Germany. Well, I'm curious. You
2: raised the point about the churches and, you know, it must have been German nationalism. To what extent do you see how do, how do you, Where do you stand in the current debate about Volksgemeinschaft? What it means, you know, if 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 you feel comfortable being that definite, but uh, the the this idea that uh, you know it could be a belief in the the, quote unquote a political goal of a classless community based on values, but the negotiation that's unfolding is about what the position of tradition or the church within those values are. Um, What do you do? You know what the church feels more Volksgemeinschaft?
0: Uh no. I I, uh, I I agree with your position, Ryan, that it's uh, this ideal in light of which policies are made, just like uh you know the Thousand Year Reich is and mm-hmm. uh and uh and, and all of these galligers are are acting within this uh within this vision of uh of a, uh, a Nazi ideal and they're trying to get from where they are to there, but they don't think they can short circuit that simply by ordering in the Gestapo, uh, and, uh, just controlling behavior because they want, uh, they want, they're going for attitudes. So, uh, I, I think that's about all I can, uh, say on, on, on that. It's important and uh, to take into account as this, uh, as this ideal, uh, the Nazis are working toward just like individual Nazis are working toward the Führer and how they understand Hitler's vision.
2: Mm-hmm. The the point you were making earlier about Goebbels' diary entry and seeing the choice of which soft spots to hit as part of uh, a, a strategy almost that was coming about. Is that that is that a definite change in tone in the attitude toward protest is this a longer standing idea? And the reason I ask is because, I mean, the timing of it is quite important, right? Like this is happening in the broader public response to the string of defeats that begin with Stalingrad in summer, or in summer, in winter of 1942-3, and then proceed through
0: 1943. Well, in terms of uh, the context and the popular opinion, we have... Already in July of 1943, there's an SD report saying that there are so many people uh, making jokes and cruel comments about the leadership and maybe even, you know, high level leaders personally that uh, it's not tenable for judicial prosecution of them because you hardly know which to choose. That is an interesting uh, sort of concern about consistency, given the Nazi interest in uh, in using certain cases as a deterrence. Uh, but uh, certainly by 1943, the regime is aware that uh, it's not giving the people what they want. And uh, Goebbels uh, puts it very clearly in uh, 1940 in June, I believe it was, after the uh German defeat of France when he says in, in moments like this we can really roll out uh our our terror apparatus more convincingly. Uh people uh who won't be going along with the regime are going to be uh much more in a minority at this point. Uh people will certainly understand the authority of the regime. It's just been proving it again and again in these uh great feats and, uh, uh, the corollary of that, of course, is that, uh, as, uh, Germany retreats, uh, as, uh, as the bombs are just, uh, making life miserable, uh, that in, in, in Hitler's calculus, it becomes harder to, uh, use force with authority because authority is diminished. Authority should be enough on its own. Uh, of course, uh, when you have the majority and you can use force against the minority very, uh, very convincingly as, as, as a fringe, that's an enemy of the people. But when, uh, uh, in his idea of authority and, and power based on authority, you have to, uh, you have to use force when, uh, authority is, uh, is at it's peak because of uh the the uh, the power that doesn't depend on the use of force because of power that's demonstrated a charismatic power i guess you could say and in the book i uh i demonstrate this in in various ways not just because of goebbels' comment but uh uh hitler's uh statements from time to time about uh about uh, when it will be possible to crack down he's always of course talking about after the war Uh, The war, of course, uh, makes the regime more dependent on the people. And uh, it makes, uh, it doesn't make, uh, of course, in the military, uh, I think there are something like 20,000 soldiers who are executed for defeatism. And and, uh, uh, this is a very different setting than the home front within Germany. It's very brutal there. There are many places in which, Uh, you know, uh, brutality is exercised, and we know some of the stories in the home front as well, where people are uh, executed for as little as grabbing some possession from a bombed house or something, but uh, that's uh, dependent uh, not on Hitler's, uh, what we're talking about here is the relationship of Hitler to the people in his role as the leader, the Fuhrer, trying to change their attitudes, trying to change them into uh, Nazis.
2: So you've been more than generous with your time. Just to wrap up, what what are some of the unresolved questions you see from this? And where do you see your research moving forward in the future?
0: I'm currently working on a project about memory. Uh, and uh, I guess it's a rather uh, thin connection. It's not about the Nazis. It's about World War II in a way three different countries remember an incident that they all shared in 1943. But uh the uh, similarity is that it's about how people collectivize. What what good are myths? Uh, World War Two myths for nationalizing the people uh, around uh, the national goal. The movie uh, Dunkirk recently, I think, shows what you know, still trying to collectivize people and. Uh, increase their morale for the national cause based on the World War II story. And uh, uh, so it's it's a story of uh, uh, how an incident is remembered, how differently that memory can be in Greece, Germany, and Italy. Well,
2: thanks very much for joining us. We look forward to hearing more from your work in the future. And uh, I suppose I will see you on uh, the
0: German Studies podcast in the future. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. I look forward to it.
2: And on that note, we draw this episode of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. Chris and I have a couple new exciting projects underway. We're looking at actually doing a biographical approach to leading Nazis to kind of explore personal narratives within the power structure and and, and look at how a lot of the larger concepts that we've been talking about play out on an individual basis. And also another another look at just ideas about how certain institutions fulfill a particular role within the power structure. So, as always, we are interested to hear from your feedback. You can get a hold of me at Staxomatics. That's S-T-A-X-O-M-A-T-I-X on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, Chris issues all social media, but of course, I will be happy to pass on your comments. And uh, yeah, as is tradition, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.